Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Good morning. Everybody hear me all right? Good. Well, my name is Ty Davis. I'm the director of operation here at uh, Tulare Community Church. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I am still feeling pretty jazzed about our Thanksgiving outreach. What a, a blessing that was uh, to uh, the community. If you guys were a part of that, raise your hand in any, any form or fashion. If you donated turkey, if you're there to help out, cool. Well, we couldn't have done this without you guys, and I think we were trying to drum up the support and let you guys know just how much we needed you guys, just how much of an, an all-hands-on-deck this thing was. Would you guys agree that this was an all-hands-on-deck event, those that could see it? Anybody know the, the count out of the, on their head, how many meals we did? You could shout it out. Yeah, over 3,200 meals. What a, what a crazy thing that was. And then we had a, a, a great Thanksgiving service. Pastor Steve uh, presented a wonderful message. Just a, what an encouragement to, to have an attitude check. Um, I'm definitely not going to have you guys participate with me after that Thanksgiving service. If you were there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's not going to be any back and forth after that. Um, but, but what a message it was, and, and after this message, we're going to be starting our Advent series by taking a unique look at the revivals in history that tie into the movement of the Holy Spirit and the incarnation of Jesus. After 400 years of silence, the Holy Spirit came to Mary, and heaven declared war on the evil one, and he brought a revival that continues to this day. And there's something in that that we tend to gloss over with the Christmas, when Christmas season comes around which for some reason it keeps happening sooner and sooner. I mean, you walk into a store and you're looking for uh, a Thanksgiving you know, decoration in the beginning of November, and all the decorations, all the things are stashed into an end, camp, end cap marked clearance, end of season sale, right? They're already there. I went into Lowe's the other day for Christmas lights. I wanted to add something to my, my yard. What used to be four aisles of Christmas stuff in November has been shrunken down to one aisle, right? What is happening? We're, we're, we're in a rush to get to the next season all the time. And we in the North American church are always in a rush to jump to the virgin birth, to the manger and the wise men. You see that the Christmas and Easter services are two of the most important services in the Western church. Not just because the stories represented are vital to our sanctification and the gospel story, but because these two services we tend to see more non-believers than any other Sunday of the year. You guys all know this. And I believe that there's a certain wonder inside of us that's built into us that draws us to God during this time of the year. There's something that, that is built into us that makes us, even those that are, that are non-believers, say, man, I, I, I just need to come and find out a little bit more. And it, and it always seems to be around this part of the year. And speaking to the believers now, I want to... Uh, or sorry, yeah, speaking to the believers now, I want to I just first talk to you guys before I get too deep into this message. Uh, we have to remember that people are coming to the church with big questions on their heart and their mind. Many are coming with doubt about the Bible. Lots of them are coming with pain and with sorrow and with big questions. And what I want for us today is to be prepared this Christmas season to first and foremost have eyes for these guests, and secondly, be prepared to answer the big questions about doubt and about death, death without navigating away from the Christmas story, the thing that brought them here. I want us to also see and understand that the Christmas story and the questions, the doubts that they have, are so closely linked together 
that we can go back to Genesis and we can answer the question while showing them what grace really looks like for them in their lives. That the Christmas story didn't begin in Luke, but the Christmas story began in Genesis, and it's much bigger than just a story about the birth. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be talking about doubt and death. So Merry Christmas. All right? So doubt. Now, I love reading studies. I love looking into statistics and things. So um, in preparing for this message, I found a lot of research that was done recently that I'd, I'd like to share with you, and I think it's going to be a big help. But if, I understand if you're not into statistics, you're not into numbers, this is your one opportunity. You can tune out for just a second and then jump back in with me here after this. But I think this is going to be a big help. Did you know that questioning what you believe about religion or God is normal for most American adults who self-identify as Christian? Based on a recent Barna Group study, Barna Group is somebody that I follow that I really love. They do some of the best studies, especially for the Christian church. But this Barna Group study showed that 65% of American adults have or still doubt religion and God. Having come of age in a more secular and pluralistic culture, millennials... Are currently, experience, are currently experiencing about twice as much doubt as any other generational groups. Among those who either currently or previously experienced spiritual doubt, the most common response for about half of them was to leave their church or worship gatherings. Even 36% of Christians and 33% of regular churchgoers chose to leave their church and stop going to worship services. Three in ten adults stopped reading the Bible and praying, while another quarter quit talking with friends or family about spirituality, God, or religion. Millennials were significantly more likely than any other generation to stop doing all of the above, and at rates much higher than the general population, all because of spiritual doubt of the Bible. A study was done in April of this year by the Barna Group, and it used 2,030 Americans participate in this, this study. And the study found that 42% had either a neutral or a skeptic view on the Bible. Meaning that they view the Bible as the inspired word of God, but with some factual or historical errors, right? That it's not inspired, but tells how the writers understood the ways and principles of God. Or they view the Bible as just another book of teachings written by men. It also means that they read, use, or listen to the Bible one time a month or less. Of those skeptics, 78% are considered hostiles, meaning they view the Bible as a book of teachings written by men and intended to manipulate and control other people. So from these studies, we can see how much doubt exists in the world today. But doubt isn't just something that exists in, you know, Western American church members today. We've seen pictures of doubt throughout Scripture Abraham doubted God when, that he would give him a son in Genesis chapter 17. Sarah doubted God in the very same way in Genesis chapter 18. Thomas doubted Jesus, had come back to the disciples, had appeared to them, and he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and I put my hand in the side, I will not believe in John chapter 20. And James chapter 1, 5 through 8 teaches us what doubt is and what it does to us. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So first and foremost, we learn that this passage, from this passage, that during times of doubt, 
during trials, we need wisdom. We need to know if this is a particular trial, is something that God wants us to eliminate by faith or really persevere through by faith. This requires wisdom. To receive wisdom, we simply have to ask God who gives wisdom generously and without reproach, meaning God is ready to add new blessings to old ones without any end or any limitation. So there's no reason to fear that he might get mad for asking about or asking for wisdom. No reason. This is a mentality that sticks with Christians from childhood. And you guys all know what I mean. Um, I remember this from childhood. It's like there came a certain point in my childhood where I learned what asking for too much was, right? You guys all remember that? You guys remember when you learned what that time was? It was like, it started when you really, really wanted something, like really, really badly, but you knew that you had just kind of gotten something a week ago, right? And so you're trying to figure out, how, how am I going to ask for this? Because I, I don't want to get the look from my parents, right? And I definitely don't want to get the look and the sigh that goes with it, because then you know you're in deep trouble, right? And so you're trying to figure out, let's see, how am I going to ask? And, and you always come up with the, the craziest reasons, and they always include something that's, you know, it's going to make life easier for your parent, right? So, man, if you could just get me this scooter, then I would gladly ride my scooter the five miles there and back to baseball practice. You don't have to take me, right? You can just sit at home. It'll make life easier on you. It'll be great, right? And we, we, we sit there, and we have this, 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 this feeling in our stomach, right, the butterflies before we, we build up to ask our parents for that. And we did this for the dumbest things, right? We did it for things that were good for us, too. We did, I remember my, my brother and I, we were going through the store one time, and we saw this toothpaste. It was flavored toothpaste, and it was something gross, too. It was like uh, orange-flavored toothpaste. If you ever brush with orange-flavored toothpaste, it is not good, right? But we figured, oh, that'll be so much better. It'll taste better. It'll make us want to brush our teeth more, right? And we, even then, we thought, man, if we ask mom for this, she could, she could get mad at us. And that was something that was good for us. Parents want us to want to brush our teeth more, right? And yet we were afraid to ask for it. And in that same way, it's the same as us asking God for wisdom. This is something that God wants us to have. He wants us to ask for it more and more. It's a good thing. And God never despises or resents us for asking for wisdom. And this should encourage us to ask him for it more often. He's the God of the open hand, not the God of the closed fist. So we want wisdom. And the place to begin is the Bible when you want wisdom. True wisdom will always be consistent with God's word. Remember that. True wisdom will always be consistent with God's word. But our request must be made like any other request in faith. Without doubting God's ability or desire to give it to us, we have to have a heart that believes God's word and believes that it speaks to us today. The one who doubts and lacks faith should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. This lack of faith shows that we have no foundation, that we're unstable in our ways, and to ask God, but in a doubting way, shows that we're double-minded. I remember as kids, my brothers and I, we, we'd experience this too. We had discussions about wanting to do, do something like ride our bikes to the mini-mart, and we knew that our dad didn't think it was safe to ride and cross Tillery Avenue to get to the mini-mart. We knew that he didn't think that uh, we could do it, and we had never ridden that far anyways, and so we had all kind of decided as, as brothers, like, He's going to say no anyways, and so we kind of drew straws, and the short straw had to sulk over to my dad, and sure enough, you know, when we asked, it was a big fat no, right? But that, that right there is a perfect picture of what it looks like to have no faith, to be double-minded, and we're seeing that more and more in our community. If we had no faith, 
we would never ask for anything at all. If we had no unbelief, we would have no doubting. And to be in the middle between faith and unbelief is to be double-minded, and we receive nothing in that state of mind. So it only makes sense that with so much doubt and disbelief in the Bible, that there would be a lack of wisdom causing people to have questions about how to handle pain and suffering and death. And here in a minute we're going to learn how these questions about suffering and death can be answered and how they can actually tie into the Christmas story that when, so that when we get guests that show up this Christmas season, when your friends and when your family show up who don't quite know and still have questions about that, that you know how to answer those questions correctly. So why, why death and pain? Well, another poll was taken by the Barna Group in which the question was asked, if you could ask God one question and know that you would receive an answer, what would you ask? And the most common questions were, why is there pain and suffering in the world, and why is there death? Those are the most common questions. This is mind-blowing to most Christians because this is a question that is clearly answered in the Bible in multiple ways and in multiple places. So why are these the most common questions? Could it be that we as the church have not done a good job at answering it when the questions come up with our friends and family? Could it be that we've just skipped over the topic for some reason? Let's take a quick refresher course on the subject and see how we can better answer these, que- these questions this Christmas. Many non-believers and even some new believers think that God created everything, including death. That God is responsible for death and suffering. But what we have to remember is that death was an enemy, an intrusion due to sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death wasn't something that God made and declared very good in Genesis 1:31, But death was a result of sin. The first time that the subject of death is mentioned in the Bible is given as a warning to our first parents. There, man in his primitive state was enjoying a beautiful relationship with God. But the Lord God warned him in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. He says, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to what? Die. And we all know what happened next. God created a perfect world, but because of the fall, our sin opened the door to death as a punishment. God judged sin with death, and he caused man to experience a taste of what happens without God. Thus, we have things like disease, sickness, and suffering. But God isn't the one to be blamed for it. Man is. Adam knew good and well what he was doing. He was aware of the rule that God had set in place. He was aware of the consequences. Both Adam and Eve made their choice together, and in so doing, they incurred the displeasure of the Lord and the consequences that were promised. And it's affected all of us as direct links to Adam. Humanity is not basically good as some want to believe. We have a culture that wants to believe this. But the Bible says, for everyone has sinned when we all fall short of God's glorious standard. See, no one can offer any legitimate reason why the death sentence should not have been passed. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the person who sins is the one who will die. James 1.15 says, sin, when it is finished, brings death. Romans 5.12 says, By one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And 2 Corinthians 4.12 says, So then, death works in us. So when we look at the tragedies in our world, in our own lives, and then the lives of those around us, 
And the question is asked, why did God allow it? We find the answer by looking at a similar question that was posed to Jesus in Luke 13, 4 through 5. Apparently a tower had fallen on a group of Gentiles, and some were suggesting that it happened because it was God's judgment. God made the tower fall. But Jesus says, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. So basically, Jesus is saying, look guys, people die. Bad things happen. We don't always have to assume and say that it was God's judgment. This happened, and it doesn't always make sense. But listen, you had better get ready because you could die too. Death will knock at every single door. No one is exempt. It could happen to any of us. It could happen tonight or tomorrow. The statistics on death are quite impressive. Actually, this, is, this may come to a surprise to you guys, but one out of every one person will die. You can't escape death. We all have an appointment with it. Job said, Oh God, remember that my life is but a breath. And the Bible says, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. We as a people, we don't want to talk about death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't want to discuss it. We don't like to bring it up. We, we fear it. But in all truthfulness, we have the Christmas story because of death. And I know that sounds weird, but it's true. The tie to Christmas, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus being born of a virgin is first mentioned as a prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Prophecy is a prediction. And in Genesis 3.15 has also been called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel. Luther said of this verse, the text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. I want to read that again because I think that this is so key to the beginning and the tie, the link to Christmas. Luther said that the, this text, Genesis 3.15, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious, glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. Genesis 3.15 in the ESV says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The NLT puts it this way, And I will cause hostility between you and woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. This is the second part of the curse that's directed against Satan himself. The first part of the curse was towards the animal that Satan used to trick the man. That was to the snake. So he cursed the snake to slither, to eat dust, and for humans to have a natural aversion to serpents. Now, I can attest to this because I hate snakes with a passion. I'm scared to death of them, okay? I love camping, but I can't ever relax because I'm constantly on the lookout for them, right? I'm so much so that I actually have regular nightmares about snakes, Okay? One time I had such a realistic nightmare, I kid you not, that I felt like this snake was crawling up my leg in the bed. And out of reaction, I smacked the snake, right, on top of the head. Well, come to find out, it was our chihuahua trying to get re comfortable in the bed. So, yeah, you know, she jerps and Sean wakes up and, and nothing, honey, it's fine, we're all right, right? But that's how much I, I'm, I'm, I fear snakes. So I believe that there's a natural aversion to snakes. But enmity has this idea of ill will, hatred, mutual antagonism. Satan's hatred of Eve was nothing new. It was already present. But now man, well, generally speaking, have antagonism towards Satan. Bible commentator David Guzik says this about the enmity that God places between us and Satan. 
He says, if we are born naturally rebellious against God, we are also born cautious and afraid of Satan. Instinctively, we don't serve God or Satan. We serve ourselves, which is fine with Satan. The second part of verse 15 says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this, God prophesies the doom of Satan, showing that the real battle is between Satan and the seed of the woman. So this is a prophecy of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan. God announced that Satan would wound the Messiah, but that the Messiah would crush Satan with a mortal wound. The heel is the part within the serpent's reach. Jesus, in taking on humanity, brought himself near to Satan's domain so Satan could strike him. Now, my initial reaction to this when I was studying was, wow, this is insanely strategic. Insanely strategic. So, this is the way my mind works, and, and, and follow this, this right with me, but God casts Satan out, right? Now, Satan's angry, and he's stewing in this ugly place. He's missing the heavenly realm. And then he finds out, that God created people in his image in his own backyard. So he strikes back and he does what he does best. He deceives them and he thinks, take that. Now your perfect creation is no longer perfect. Death is the only response. You have to kill them. But instead of killing his creation, God chooses to send his son instead. Satan's like, what? He, you're sending your son? You're sending your son into my hood? I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to get back to God in the most amazing way, the, 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 the ultimate way. I'm going to make it so hard on Jesus, his son, I'll convince people to mock him, I'll convince people to beat him, to slander him, to refute his teachings, and at the end of the day, I'll convince them to kill him. This can't get any better, Satan thinks. But the whole time, the Godhead is two steps ahead, using our self-made circumstances to save us and to condemn Satan once and for all. Adam and Eve's sin was punishable by death, based on Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Something had to die to cover their sin. Sin made Adam and Eve feel naked and ashamed. This is why God killed animals and made clothes out of them for Adam and Eve, to cover their shame. And from this, that's where we get, you know, we see the Israelites follow this pattern of presenting sin offerings to cover their sins by sacrificing animals. But an animal can't take away the sin of man. But God is a God of grace. Grace is when someone rightly and justly decrees punishment to someone for their crime. Out of love, they then take that punishment upon themselves. That's grace. That's mercy. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice of our sin. This is why he was born. This is the true meaning of Christmas. It was the response to the death penalty. It was the answer to our first sin. And every sin thereafter, our Creator in the person of Jesus Christ came into the world so that He could pay the ultimate penalty for our sin and declare war on Satan, on sin, and most importantly, on death. For God to see the defeat of Satan at Satan's first hint of victory shows that God knew what he, His plan was all along. He knew what He was doing all along. God's plan wasn't set back when Adam and Eve sinned because God's plan was to bring forth something greater than man in the innocence of the Garden of Eden. God wanted more than an innocent man. His plan is to bring forth redeemed man. Redeemed man, this being who is greater than innocent man, is only possible because man had something to be redeemed from. 
So ultimately, the foundation of Christ's birth goes back to Genesis. This is where Christmas sermons should start, particularly in a culture that's full of doubt, that's been brainwashed to believe that this part of the Bible, the Old Testament, cannot possibly be true. We need to teach people to understand why they need Jesus before they'll understand that they need to receive Jesus. The Christmas story is an important one, not just because we were introduced to the, the character that would turn religion over on its head, would break down cultural barriers and show us how to truly love others, but it's an answer to the people who are coming to church saying, I hear you saying that Jesus was born of a virgin so that he could die on the cross and he, and he could save my sins, but that doesn't change the fact that the very same God that exists in that baby took my dad, he took my mom, my brother, my sister, whoever, they're saying, why did they suffer? Why did they feel so much pain? Why did the God who supposedly love us allow for death? What is he going to do about it? Christmas is our celebration. It's the answer to death. He's defeated death once already, and when he comes a second time, death will be no more. That enemy will be wiped away forever. Like we mentioned last week, God is sovereign, and he is reigning on the throne as we speak. We can take comfort in this. The answer to these people is this. This is how we answer when they show up. This is how we answer when they're saying, I'm hurting and I don't know why he's taken. The story of Christmas represents the greatest day in history. Death is beaten and because of it, we can say, thank you, God. You have rescued me. And we should sing it out at the top of our lungs. Jesus is alive. He lives on. He beat the cross. The cross is empty. He beat the grave. The grave is empty. Because of him, life is eternal. You have won the day. This is a happy day. He's washed our sins away and I'll never be the same. Forever we're changed. Let's stand and sing. Let's stand and declare this Christmas season that Jesus is alive. Let's sing. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.